Hello, Kira Dyer here. Welcome to episode 10 of Loving an Addict. This podcast with my husband Duff is inspired by a great loss, our daughter Emma, who passed away from an accidental overdose. Our desire is to spread awareness, love, and hope to also help those who are striving to love the addict in their lives, because we know that that person is so much more than an addict. This week is a little bit different. We have somebody that we have invited onto our podcast who knew Emma through actually her first treatment center in Utah. They met there and were together most of the entire year. We thought it would be impactful to be able to hear from a recovering addict kind of what led up to it and also, you know, the bright future in front of her. She's been able to take her hard and make something really good and start a company that has brought some really beautiful things to people who are also struggling. Now, we've had a guest only one other time, but that was in person, and this is remote. So there was a whole new set of learning curve here. And bless Megan's heart, she's three hours ahead of us. She's on the opposite coast. And so she told me that it was past her bedtime. And in her words, her brain wasn't firing on all cylinders. So bless her heart, she did such a beautiful job. And we're so proud of her for sharing her story. And also, just because I became aware of this word just a few months back, Megan uses it. I just don't want you guys to be lost like I would have been. The word neurodivergent in association with her ADHD. And this can mean a lot of different things. That's anything that is neurologically unique. So it could be Tourette's, it could be autism, ADHD, it could be dyslexia. So that encompasses a lot of those issues. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up was for Emma, Duff and I really feel like her ADHD was a misdiagnosis. Now, I know this isn't for everybody. And I'm not speaking for Megan. I'm just speaking for our case. But I believe when there was the hidden pornography use and also excessive phone use, we would take it away and she would find a way to access a phone and to feed her addiction. So I believe those things were signs of ADHD when she was a child. Now, I don't doubt that, you know, there was some ADHD tendencies for Emma, but When I look back, I think those were made much, much worse because of those issues. And so I just wanted to make parents aware that that might also be something that their child is struggling with to make this thing larger than it could have been. Okay, here we go. This second go around. Here we go, guys. We have never done this before. Special guest. That's right. On the show. Special guest. The infamous Megan Smith. <laughs> There's thousands of listeners that cannot wait for you to share your story today. Okay, Megan? But the reason we asked Megan to join us today is she knew Emma and her first treatment program, which was Turnabout Teen Stillwater in Utah. Megan obviously has her own unique story as to what led her to that program and and after. But we thought it would be very helpful to have somebody come on that has kind of, I guess, walked in the same shoes as our Emma at times. And we thought it would be beneficial to hear 
what would have been more helpful for you? What are good things for families to understand and other kids that are struggling as well? So with that, Megan, if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> share with us and our thousands of listeners your story. Take it away. So I, we could start at when I met Emma about seven years ago at Turnabout. That was definitely at least my parents' last straw of not knowing what to do with me. I wanted to say that was my rock bottom, but it actually wasn't. It was very close to my adolescent rock bottom. As much as I hated a lot about the program itself, I can tell you that it 100% saved my life. And I used to resent my parents for it, but I can tell you now that I do not. I had to leave. How long did that take for you to go, oh, that was actually good for me? How long did that last? I still struggle with it. But I think 22. And you were 17 when you were in Stillwater, correct? 17 to 18. Yeah. I think, I think you're not alone there. It feels like a lot of people who had been to Stillwater feel like, and I knew Emma felt the same, that it, would, that it was something that helped saved her and put her back on track. But all of the restrictions and the rules were extremely hard to follow and being away from family and those kinds of things. So it was definitely kind of a double-edged sword for you guys. Like getting a wonderful way of putting that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So share with our listeners your, um, I guess, the reasons for why you ended up there and then what's happened since. And then maybe also a little bit about your relationship with Emma and if you want to share some of that stuff too. So I had just turned 17, by the way. It was like a happy birthday, and then everything hit the fan, and then I'm in Utah. But at that age, I was hanging out about three blocks away from my house with someone who was double my age, who was a heroin addict at the time. Um, I didn't fully grasp what heroin was or the situation that I was in, but I was blacking out. I wasn't coming home. I was very close to being fully dependent on very hard drugs. So like I said, thankful that I got sent when I did. And what um, were you when you started using, call it harmful drugs, and, and I assume you know what led to that? The coping. Crap. Leading up to that, everything came to light in high school. Freshman year, I was hospitalized for the first time. Then it was sophomore year, I got hospitalized twice junior year i got sent to chicago which was an eating disorder specific treatment program but i was only there for a month since i struggled so much in middle school i mean elementary school but like core middle school of being bullied there was not hate megan smith club i genuinely did not have any friends so i'd say around eighth grade definitely started going to the quote-unquote bad kids uh, because they didn't bully me and they like accepted me. Quote, again, more quotes, accepted me. I'd say the summer going into freshman year, I thought I had a best friend and I definitely did not. She was dating someone who was 18 and she asked me to sleep over and I did and we snuck out to her boyfriend's and that was the first time that I was raped. 
And from freshman year to 20 years old, I ended up in a lot of horrible situations that led me to that point. So if you were able to talk to your, I guess, junior high selves and you're going through all these hard, the bullying and not having friends, what do you wish you had? What do you wish someone said to you? What do you wish was different? I wish that I had all of the outlets and resources that I do now, that they even existed at the time, because I really don't even think that they did. It's really hard to explain to people the velocity of ADHD. I wish that someone looked at me and said, I see you. You're not being dramatic. You are in pain. And actually helping me with the core of the problem and not the surface. So you had more, if you had more tools to help you with your ADHD, you think that would have been more helpful or just more resources, people to turn to who knew how to explain or to give you tools to cope with that? For someone to actually care, not my parents. I'm talking in the field of mental health, the amount of times that that diagnosis itself got ignored. I was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder instead, bipolar at the age of 14, 15, which legally you can't do. I was just getting passed from program to program to therapist to therapist on all these different medications that I can't even give you a list now. I just wish I had someone at some point that just sat down and cared enough to ask the right questions. And what do you think the right questions would have been? back then. And also, do you think you would have had the ability to be honest about them? Because there were plenty of times where we tried to take Emma to see a professional or sit down with her and talk to her. And what was going on inside of her, she was unwilling to tell anyone. And of course, this came out years later. But I I think a big part of helping teenagers is helping them understand how to communicate and how to feel safe with their communication, which is, these are things that we didn't know at the time ourselves. So, Oh yeah. My parents didn't know either. My mom's still trying to learn. Sorry. I literally forgot your question. Oh, just what questions would have been helpful for you or. Oh, now I remember. Sorry. That's okay. I guess the way I look at it, and I'm only speaking from a neurodivergent kid. I want to make sure. I'm trying to speak for everybody. Of course. A neurodivergent kid, I think the best way to explain it would be by the time that the actions or the way I behaved, any of that came to light and was apparent, it was too late. To answer your question of would I have been honest if I was asked the right questions? Sure. Yes. I'd say in elementary school, but I think after middle school, it was already too late. Too much had happened. I was too overwhelmed at that point to even comprehend anything. I was in so much pain and I didn't even know where to begin to voice it. And that's where most of us get called attention seekers. Because, yeah, we are screaming. We want attention because we're in pain. We literally have no idea how to, in a healthy way or constructive way, voice that. 
So we could talk to you for hours about this. <laughs> it's so close to obviously our, our hearts, but you were at Stillwater for about a year. You left when you were 18. And then what? Absolute hell. I think for me personally, being in treatment, my whole formative years, that's most people learn how to be an adult, how to take care of themselves, etc. I was always in a program, never in real life. So when I was basically kicked to the curb and been like, all right, now you're 18, you're fully responsible legally and emotionally for yourself. Go to college. If you don't go to college, you can't live here. There was just so many things that immediately were thrown at me. And I was terrified, lost, and did my best for probably four months. Yeah. And all of the pain that was actually never dealt with immediately came back. I found myself in very unsafe situations again. Very quickly, I ended up kicked out twice. From your parents' home? Yeah. The second time that I got kicked out, I put myself in another hospital because I was my rock bottom. After I got out of the hospital, I did try and convince myself again that I was healed, I was okay, and that I could figure it out. I was level for a little bit. I was getting by, wasn't doing anything horrible working two jobs. Then finally, I I was 21 and I decided that I want to go back to school. I thought I was doing phenomenal. Going to school for mental health, human services, took my first addiction studies class, was hooked, switched my major, and I was working at a adult male detox and rehab facility. And as we discussed before, all of my unhealed trauma very quickly came back. Because you were just surrounded by other people that were dealing with the same thing. I don't judge addicts ever. Yeah. Addiction is one of my passions. It was just when a human being is detoxing from these drugs, they are in their own pain and they will make sure that you know that. Yeah. I had to medically withdraw from school and I was put on temporary disability. I was the grown adult who knows a lot. I was very unstable, but I wanted to do something different. And instead of keep going in a cycle of treatment that I knew my whole life, I found a trauma therapist and she said the temporary disability, we were going to try something else. And lo and behold, it worked. I took the time. I put in the work. I started learning about me. And then I created an entire business that was centered around that healing that I was doing. So your turnaround, turnabout <laughs> was seeking a trauma therapist. So yep. she was the one that helped you deal with all this trauma that you said just kept getting buried. We felt that a little bit with Emma in that we didn't uncover everything. It was the drugs were alarming and the drugs were why you went to rehab. But in her case, we feel like we never gave her an opportunity to heal from sexual trauma, like from pornography use and addiction, because it wasn't like forefront. It wasn't that most alarming. But 
now in hindsight, we can look all the way back and realize that was the beginning for her. That was the shame. That was what she was covering up. That was why she was coping because she didn't know how to talk to anybody about it. So I think that makes a lot of sense when you're going to therapy to try and stop negative behavior, but you're not getting any therapy to heal from all the trauma that you had. And that is why any system that's put in place currently anywhere to, they like to say help addicts, it is not helpful by any means because anyone with an addiction, I guarantee you, they started doing drugs for a reason. Right. There's It's not about necessarily stopping the drugs first. It's about learning why you even started doing drugs in the first place. Right. Because you can do meetings and you can stay clean for these periods of time. But if you don't ever go deeper than that, those relapses are never going to stop. Yeah. And they tend to get worse and worse and worse as as time goes on. And then maybe you can identify with this, but Emma would put herself into really harmful situations that got more and more and more drastic as well. Does, does that sound familiar? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if we keep, we run for as long as we can, but the longer you run, the more you hate yourself. But it's also the term homeostasis comes to mind, being in a state of misery, but it's comfortable because it's really all you know. It's also the only way we see ourselves. Right. Right. So tell us a little bit about your relationship to Emma, because maybe people are like, what what is this really (laughs) sweet, you know, smart gal Megan have anything to do with what's going on? Right. Right. God. He's listening, by the way. <laughs> Why'd you have to say that, <laughs> Emma? I, I don't even know if I can accurately put into words what Emma means to me. From the second I met her, she just gave off this energy that is unmatched. The love that she had for anyone and everyone. You could have done the worst thing in the world. And Emma would have been there to hug you and tell you that it's okay. Throughout I the- with the exception of a boomer who can't use their smartphone. <laughs> Those are the only people she could not tolerate in the no. church. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So there's a small class of people where she wanted nothing. The 1%. The 1%. Right. <laughs> if I'm being fully honest, throughout Utah, I envied her. I envied everything about her. She was so smart. She was very good at putting on a face. She always looked put together, always happy. Again, quotes, I know that in reality that wasn't the case. Yeah. Everything she represented was everything that I wanted to be. I wanted to be that good, happy, loving person. But even as I learned more about Emma and that it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, it just made me love her so much more. We always got along and connected on the basis of even though we went through horrible things and were still in tremendous amounts of pain, all we could really think about was how we can help other people. Yeah, I always found that very interesting in that people who are hurting the most have the most to give. 
And it does make sense in some way because you know the pain and you want to help people in pain. But at the same time, at least for Emma's case, she would help others before she was helping herself when it, we were like, help yourself. But that was her love language is, is to help other people. You know, I will never be able to fill Emma's shoes. But in my daily life, everything I do has Emma in mind. I just miss her a lot. We do too. Yeah. So Megan, we love that you're living for Emma and you're honoring her with all of the beautiful things that you're doing now. And can I just say you starting this business with starting in a place of hard and gut punching difficulties in your life and you turn it around to something so beautiful is just so impressive to me. And we are just so amazed by that when you could easily just curl up in a ball and say, nope, I'm done. I'm not, I'm checking out. And I'm sure you have those days because we all have those days. But the fact that you turned that around and said, you know what, I'm going to make something beautiful out of my pain. So I want you to tell our listeners about your company. Tell us what it is. So I saw a business and it's called Peach Pocket. At the core of my business, I make support jars. I like to say that inside each of the support jars are supportive messages or important reminders. I know a lot of people immediately go, oh, so affirmations? I kind of like to say they are different because the way I make them, I have to literally sit down with myself and really hone in on the repetitive negative thoughts that are correlated to whatever the specific jar is that I'm doing. Let's say depression just sitting down and all of those suicidal ideations, all of those lies that my head tells me over and over, I would try and switch it to something positive. Not even just positive. It was more of a reality-based support. I feel like that's like my favorite way of explaining it because it's so important to know that you can't be positive every day. Yeah. I mean, you could try, but nine times out of 10, it's not real. And you're denying yourself just sitting and feeling what you're feeling. You don't have to be happy all the time because you're not going to be. But it's also important to do it in a constructive way, which is what I like to explain the drawers as. Yeah. So I should have brought the one that you gave us. You gave us one after Emma passed away with about grieving. So it's basically just any, you have lots of different sizes of jars, but it's specific to different um, difficulties. Will you name a few? You said depression. I have depression support, anxiety support. I have eating disorder recovery support. I have addiction recovery support, um, sexual assault survivors support. Um, But then I also have things like the grief and loss or one called general motivation. I have morning night mantras. Um, chores for kids, teachers, mental health professionals. So this is just something that's in a little capsule. It's a capsule you can break open and it has a little message in it. So just something to help people in whatever area they're struggling in. Yeah, I like to say there's definitely no rules to the jars. It's however you want to use them. And where do people go to research these jars? Purchase them. (laughs) Oh, I do have my own website. 
It's peachpocketdesigns.com. I offer all of the different varieties of things that I sell on my site. One of my favorite things is the reminder bracelets. Due to the fact that my brain needs dopamine. And if you give me anything repetitive, I get very bored of it, even though it is helpful to other people. But, of course, it's mundane and I don't like that. So binder bracelets are my way of not only coping with life, but giving myself the constant creative freedom. Whatever I'm feeling, whatever I need in the time that I'm making the bracelets is the word or phrase I throw on there. All the way to today's canceled. Just anything that I'm feeling or need. Then I just have fun with the beads. Those alone have made an oddly large impact on people, which I never thought. So I have two more questions. What would you like families to know more than anything in relation to someone they love who is struggling with any form of addiction, no matter what that is, that's clearly harmful? And what is it that you would love for those that are struggling with these addictions to also know? If there's one thing for each, what would you say, in your opinion, again, this is for you, what, do you, what would be pretty important to understand? Immediately, what came into my head about what I would want other addicts to know, that you are not your addiction. You are not what you have done. You are deserving of love and kindness the same way as anybody else. Absolutely. And when addicts struggle to believe you because they struggle believing you, what do you then tell them? You don't stop reminding them. And how about parents of, especially teenagers, because they're in our home. Yeah, they're not at an adult age to where. Obviously, that's a different type of relationship, but especially those in the home still of the family. Like, what do you want parents and families to understand? Right off the bat, I feel like most people know this, but it's kind of hard in the moment when you love somebody. You cannot change them. You cannot them. Um, it is sad their choice. Right. But I think... The best way to try to help them is to, like I said, remind them of all of those very important things, because usually the way that they see themselves and think about themselves is what is fueling them at the core to keep staying in addiction. But I think as a parent, if you can non-invasively try and help them get to the core, that's a place to start. Because most doctors and programs will just tell you to focus on the surface level, which is obviously the destructive behaviors. But as parents know that it's really not the surface, there is something deeper and look harder. I don't know if you happen to see the video I posted about kind of expelling the bad. Um, It's so easy to get caught into the hard and replay it over and over and it just becomes this recording in my head where I've had to find a way to eliminate that the best I could and concentrate on the positive because even during all of the hard there were still beautiful things and even though it's really hard to do that but for me that was my light switch in this 
healing journey of the 10 months that we've been doing this without her is I always try to go to the grateful and to the beautiful, like you're doing in your business. You're trying to exude the beautiful and the upliftment and the encouragement. And there's something really beautiful about someone who knows great deep pain to be able to bring beautiful, wonderful words to people. It's healing. And we commend you for that, for turning your pain into something so beautiful and to continue to live your life in a way that is helping people around you. We think it's beautiful and we are greatly impressed by you for sure. I definitely don't want anyone to think that I am by any means perfect or know what I'm doing, but I'm just doing my best. Yeah. Well, your best looks amazing from here and we're really impressed with you. I just want to thank you for being Emma's friend. Yeah. Emma was a lover. And unlike Michael Jackson said once, she was also a fighter. And I would just love, we just have a, another minute to go. There's one last thing you'd like to let people know. No matter how cliche, never give up sounds. Even in your darkest thoughts and times, it does pass. Not every day will be perfect. You most definitely will have another dark day, but you live through it once. You're going to live through it again. Right. Yeah. There are better, happier things out there that I'm now learning. Yeah. I love that. Well, God bless you, Megan. Yeah. We're really grateful you joined us today. And as we always end our shows, there's always, always, always help. And always, always hope. Thanks to you, we now have more help and more hope. <laughs> That's right. Of course. Anything I can do to help. So thanks again for joining. Thanks, Megan. You're the Thank best. you for creating a book. Well, I got Thanks, Megan. Just a couple things I wanted to reiterate that I thought were really important for both parents and kids struggling with these issues. The thing that I loved was that Megan shared what really was effective for her was trauma therapy. Now, I know Emma had therapy throughout her addictions, but I believe that if we really, really, really honed in on what we know was the beginning and really, really dig that out, which for her was pornography, I believe that there would have been more healing. So at all costs, get to the core of why your child is using, get to the core of why there is an addiction to begin with, because I think that's where the real healing will begin. The other thing I loved that she said was never give up. There's certainly going to be hard days again, but never give up because this is going to pass. This too shall pass, right? And for parents to remember that we can't control for me and for Duff, I know not having control is the most helpless feeling because you really don't have control with your child's addiction. But what we do have control over is to keep reminding him, like Megan said, over and over and over, you are worthy of love and kindness and you deserve those things and keep telling them over and over. Their addiction does not define them. Like I say in the beginning, they are so much more than an addict. Another thing we wanted to tell parents, because 
Emma's story lines up with Megan's story is if that child has been in treatment for a significant amount of time, both of them have been in for a year, and then they turn 18, and as parents, we're like, hey, kick out of the nest, you're good. You got this. You're an adult. Well, remember, especially with drugs, there is a delay. Just mentally, there is a delay. Um, an 18-year-old who has dealt with some drugs might act younger than their age. That was definitely Emma's case, but we had had her home for the summer, and she worked and had a job and was doing really good, and then we dropped her off at college, and we're like, okay, see ya. You got it. <laughs> Peace out. Not realizing that she needed a lot more parenting than any other 18-year-old would. She needed a lot more support, a lot more nudging, a lot more checking in. And that is definitely something that we messed up on. Maybe had done something locally where she could have been by us or near us or lived with us. And obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. But I just think that's something to be aware of as a parent that this isn't going to be a typical dropping off your child at college story. There's going to need to be some support systems in place and perhaps not having such a far distance for going to college to be away from family. That's something that definitely I wish that we knew then. So just thought I would end on those and thank Megan again for joining us and, and being brave enough to share her story. And please remember to like and to share this content. Thumbs up on YouTube. That all helps us reach people in need of hearing this podcast. As always, we're going to take you out on a recording of Emma playing and singing the piano and a message that we believe she would want you to hear. Mm -hmm.